I'm interested in connections. And so for me, how are we influenced by the landscape around us? And then it's the connections between people and place. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we enjoyed a conversation with Tim Person and Ms. Ellen Smith, president and manager, respectively, of the Ray Gibson Caballeros Club in Tacoma, Washington. This private social club has been anchored atop a cliff in Tacoma, where it enjoys views of Mount Rainier, the highest point in the Pacific Northwest. Well, today we get to explore our built and natural topography, including our tallest peaks, thanks to one of the Pacific Northwest's best-known geologists and commentators on our landscapes, whether natural or human-made. Our guest has written for the Smithsonian and Earth Magazine, and his nine books, published by the University of Washington Press and the Mountaineers, include The Seattle Street Smart Naturalist, Field Notes from Seattle, Stories in Stone, too high and too steep, reshaping Seattle's topography. Seattle Walks, discovering history and nature in the city. Waterway, the story of Seattle's locks and ship canal. And Home Waters, a human and natural history of Puget Sound. So today we'll explore how a geologist's keen eye can transform how we see the hills and valleys, the ridges and bluffs, the creeks and lakes, and the faults and landslides that govern our landscape and we'll explore the interplay over time between the natural landscape and the one that we've created to better suit the evolving needs of our city. And finally, we'll learn how a childhood affinity for field trips has launched a lifetime of exploring, writing, and teaching. And stick around at the end of today's podcast. You'll learn how you can receive a private tour from today's guest. Let's drive around. So let's welcome our guest today, David B. Williams. Hey, David. Hey, Edward. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for hosting me, and thanks for the nice introduction. So when did you realize that you love geology? I mean, as a kid, I collected rocks like everyone's supposed to do. But it really wasn't until college I had uh, taken a introduction to geology class. It had been suggested to me by a geology major. And I enjoyed it. It was fun and interesting and started to thinking about place. But it really wasn't until I took physics that I realized how much I really liked geology. And as you said, how much I really liked field trips. I had gone to college with this idea that I was going to design alternative forms of human-powered transportation, bikes. I've always been into bikes. And I took a physics quiz and got a 16%. I thought, well, maybe I'm not so good at that. But I had taken the geology class, as I said. I loved it. And I figured, why not? Major in field trips. So you're also a native Seattleite. I got here when I was five. Whether you call that uh, native or not, some people would say no. But I've been here for, what, over 50 years now. So I read that your dad worked with Brewster Denny. Brewster was my dad's boss at the University of Washington. So if you're not familiar with Brewster Denny, his great grandfather, great-grand-uncle, at least his great-grand, that generation back, uh, were part of the Denny family, sort of considered to be the founding, one of the founding families of the city. And so you have great connection to the founding of the city. Yeah. I mean, what amazes me is that Brewster Denny knew someone who was on the first boat to arrive in Seattle, the the exact, which arrives in, what, 1851. 
and is considered to be the beginning of the city. And the youngest person on that boat was a Denny, and Brewster knew him. And the fact that I knew Brewster, who knew someone who was on that first boat, to me, it wasn't until much later in life. But I realized that how tight and short the story of Seattle is, at least post-European settlement. So what's the connection between the Denny regrade and downtown Seattle and that founding? Yeah, uh, so Ar- Arthur Denny had set aside 10 acres of land where what we now call Denny, the Denny regrade is to be uh, the state capital. And he was convinced that it was probably better to have the university. Plus his property at that time was considered to sort of be too far out there, which gives you an idea how small Seattle was back in the day. And that property was preserved and in 18... 18- 89, they started building a hotel on that property called the Denny Hotel, which then gave the name to that hill, which had been called Capitol Hill, changed the name to Denny Hill, and then Capitol Hill was then obviously reused later for a different hill. So Capitol Hill, was that intended to be the capital? That was the hope. Arthur Denny hoped it would be the capital. Uh, It was never going to happen. And then they shifted it to what we now know as Capitol Hill, but without any intent that it be the Capitol at that point. Correct. There's no intent uh, for that. They really, interestingly enough, coincidentally enough, my mom actually wrote the sort of main history book on Capitol Hill and did a lot of research. And she basically concluded the name was chosen because it sounded good. So we'll talk about the created landscape in a bit, but let's talk more about the landscape that we inherited here from nature. Can you give us a mile-high overview? How is our landscape formed, geologically speaking? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting about Seattle is the landscape here is very young. The most recent real major geologic activity, if you will, was during the last ice age, say 17 to 15 and a half thousand years ago when you have this big sheet of ice that moves out of Canada, passes between the Olympics and the Cascades, extends to a little bit past Olympia, and then retreats or melts back to the north. And at its greatest extent, that ice sheet was about 3,000 feet thick in Seattle, so five space needles. So you have this big sheet of ice that shapes the land and does two things. One is it water flowing underneath the ice excavates out Puget Sound and Lake Washington, and then the ice itself acts as a big rake to create the the hills of Seattle, the hills and valleys that all run north-south in the city. So we have that very young aspect. A little bit deeper back in time, there is a big fault system that runs under Seattle called the Seattle Fault that has also influenced the shape of the city. So it's a very dynamic place. And then we started out with Mount Rainier. So that is it an active volcano? It's an active volcano. It's considered to be an active volcano. So it's one of our five volcanoes. And like all of the volcanoes in Washington State, it's under a million years old, the five volcanoes. So it's extremely young. Uh, now we've got an eruption down here. Now we got a big slide coming off. The slide is coming off of the west slope. Uh, now we got a whole great big uh, eruption out of the uh, crater. To me, the most stellar icon here is that you've got these two mountain ranges, the Olympics and the Cascades, right, that kind of frame our viewpoint regardless of where you are. If you wanted to 
sort of see our geology, the youth of our geology sort of physically, is there a place that you would send somebody? Discovery Park is always nice. Uh, being on Beacon Hill, sort of the south end of Beacon Hill, where you can see things, but uh, or going over to Bainbridge and then looking back across. I mean, as we well know, there are many viewpoints where you can see both the Cascades and the Olympics in Seattle, and which is you know arguably why it's or why I would think it's arguably one of the most beautiful cities in the world. The Olympic Mountains rise cool and beautiful between the Sound and the Pacific Ocean, and east meets west in the Cascades with Mount Baker towering in the north, Mount Rainier in the middle, and Mounts Adams and St. Helens in the south, all major peaks. If there's an earthquake, I guess people say it's not a matter of if, but when. And right. maybe when could be, you know, a jillion years from now. Oh, it'll be sometime in the next, not too long. However you want to view not too long, I won't define. Well, you probably define it differently than me. Probably, yeah. But... Um, what will be the first to go? Where will we be most at risk as a city? The area that's going to struggle the most is the area of the tide flats where the stadiums are. I mean, the stadiums themselves won't because they were built after we understood the geologic issues in the Seattle area much better. So those are anchored and are very stable. But the areas to the south where, say, the uh, Starbucks headquarters is, which used to be a Sears building— all of that area is really going to struggle. And the area you don't want to be is on Harbor Island. Harbor Island is not safe. The north end of it in particular is just, it's bound to fail. Okay. Not much you can do about it. And then how about the seawall? How about the waterfront of Seattle? Is the seawalls, you know, they rebuilt it. So 10 years ago, I would have been more worried, but now they've done, they've done a much better job. I mean, that we have benefited by in the last 25 years of a better geological understanding of the city to raise our building codes, improve them, but we still have a long ways to go. There's still a lot of issues. And, and it boils down to money. It's how much you want to spend. So much has been made in some of your books about the seven hills of Seattle. So what are the seven hills? And it seems like it's an allusion to ancient Rome, but where did that get started? And what are the seven hills? And Yeah. Uh, so if you're not familiar, there are supposedly seven hills in ancient Rome that are little volcanic domes. So just little blisters in the landscape, as opposed to ours, which are glacial. And our seven, depending on what time period you're looking at, if you're looking at modern times, let's see, it's Beacon, Capitol Hill, Denny, First Hill, West Seattle, Magnolia, and Queen Anne. Those are seven. The more modern, that, that's the modern seven. The historic seven, you have, you would eliminate Magnolia and West Seattle and put in a Second Hill and what was called a Yesler or Profanity Hill. So Second Hill is where T.T. Minor is, just a little bit east of Capitol Hill, and Profanity Hill is where Harborview is located, and that was, the name came from the fact that that was where the old county courthouse was, and before the freeway went in, it was a very steep street to go to Profanity, and they called, apparently the uh, lawyers uttered words that are profane. 
And the idea has been around for practically about as long as Seattle has. And I think it really comes from the fact that Seattle thought it would sound better if it had a connection to Rome. It's typical Seattle story. Seattle's been insecure for since day one, too. Less than 100 years ago, heavy timber covered the hills and waterfront where Seattle now stands. In this short time, Seattle has grown to a metropolitan center of more than half a million people, largest city in the Pacific Northwest. So a lot of your work focuses on how the landscape has been remade. So where did that begin? What was the impetus? Why did the landscape here have to be remade? And is it different than other cities? Every city shapes itself. Every city tries to create the topography they want. If it's a city that's built on water, Boston, New York, they all alter that shoreline to make it more suitable for the econ- their economic needs, and Seattle's no different. We just happen to have a couple things either going for us or against us, depends on how you see the world. What's going for us is we have this glacial landscape that means that the hills of Seattle are not bedrock, they're not solid, so they're fairly easy to, to alter. And because we have a glacial landscape, there's a lot of challenges in the city. We have that sort of hourglass shape. And so people have always been trying to figure out how do you get from point A to point B more easily? And that really has driven much of the shaping, certainly the regrading of the hills, uh, the filling in of the tide flats where the two stadiums are, and the ship canal ties sort of into that, but also goes back into another aspect of economics of where are we going to have good shipping and also tied into the Navy, uh, the military. So it's all about that relationship to place and particularly back in that era in the 1900s when people didn't care about what that meant in the sense of, oh, if we need to displace people, so what? If we need to alter the landscape, so what? They didn't do environmental impact statements. So it was very easy to shape the landscape. And to what extent did the type of vehicles and transportation at the time influence those decisions compared yeah, to Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point, too. Certainly, you didn't have automobiles when the Denny Hill starts to be regraded. Uh, once the automobile comes in, it's really irrelevant. They didn't have to regrade. The... Tide flats, you could argue always something always had to be done to that if they were going to have that as an economic engine, as a port area. If they were going to leave it as the indigenous people had it, where it was this landscape of change and very dynamic both tide-wise but also food-wise and very important to indigenous people, you would have left it. But Seattle Lights viewed it as an economic resource. So a lot of the changes are not obvious today. And I know in some of the Seattle walks, it's great. There's a walk that you have kind of along the waterfront that really it does some sleuthing, kind of shows different elements that sort of the unevenness of the streets in Pioneer Square, some of the topography around Western Avenue and the waterfront and things like that. So can you bring us under the tent a little bit in terms of understanding how the waterfront specifically was changed and what elements today kind of persist that would indicate that? Yeah, the the one example I always use in terms of sort of the downtown area 
is if the landscape is flat, it's not natural. So think of coming down Alaskan Way. All of that is flat. That's all built land. Prior to the changing of that landscape, the, the shoreline was probably, or not probably, was much closer to where the cliffs start to rise up. So if you go on, again, on Alaskan Way, it's flat, and then all of a sudden you have a bluff that you go up. And that really was the shoreline. So I'm thinking of that huge staircase going down from Union. Right, um, that, new, that staircase that they've just been working on, the Pike Street Hill climb. If you think about it from Spring Street, I think it's to Wall Street, maybe a block north, there is no road you can drive from the waterfront directly up to First Avenue. And First Avenue was historically known as Front Street because it was the waterfront. So that to me is a good way to think about it is these flat places. The Denny Regrade, it's perfectly flat. There'd been a hill there. So that's unnatural. The area where the, the stadiums are, what I call the kingdoms, I know they have other names, that area is flat. It's all unnatural. That's all filled in. So if you'd gotten here in 1850 from... Beacon Hill to West Seattle to about the Spokane Street Viaduct, at high tide, that would have been a, a pool of water 10 to 15 feet deep. So just completely different, particularly the downtown area. So let's talk about the Ship Canal and the locks. You devoted really two books yeah. kind of on the topic. For me, I've always just taken for granted that there are locks, that they run in a particular direction. It always seems like it's something that's always been here. So when and how was all of those new waterways created? Yeah, the locks are uh, an impressive feature in the landscape of Seattle. And the original idea comes from a 4th of July picnic in 1854 when a guy named Thomas Mercer of Mercer Street hosted everyone at his property, which was on what we now call Lake Union. And at the 4th of July picnic, Mr. Mercer said, we should name this Lake Union in the hopes that someday it will unite Lake Washington, which he also named, over towards Salmon Bay area. So he proposes the idea. And in 1917, July 4th, uh, 63 years later, it's completed. So those are the bookends. And the vision, depending on what time you examine it, changes. Uh, Mercer recognized it was very hard, again, to go from point A to point B in Seattle to move things. He had also most likely been influenced by the Native people because since as long as people know, they were moving from Lake Washington to saltwater, moving between saltwater and freshwater across that lake. And so he would have seen that as a transport network. And we certainly know that people have been moving through that area. So the modern ship canal is really just manifestation of an idea and a concept that's been around and utilized for thousands of years. So idea gets proposed. One of the reasons people cited for having a ship canal is that if you had one, you could use Lake Union for uh, shipping purposes, that boats could come into Lake Union and be on freshwater instead of on saltwater. Uh, there's also a proposal that it would make a good, that Lake Washington would be a naval port, freshwater and saltwater, advantage of freshwater. But really by the time it's done 
in, they start work on it really in 1909, the modern ship canal. It was less having to do with the military, more having to do with commerce, though it never really served the commercial purposes that they hoped. And now it's much more of a recreational facility than a commercial facility. But you could also argue that we would not have the North Pacific shipping fleet that goes up to Alaska every year and the billions of dollars it generates if we didn't have a freshwater port, which is provided by the locks. One of the things that was an epiphany when I was reading your book was the fact that the route for the different canals that were built wasn't necessarily, there were multiple routes proposed getting from the salt water into the fresh water. So can you share a little bit about what those routes were and how, how one invented it? Ended yeah, up there were a variety of them. I mean, the logical one was the one that was built. It makes sense. But this being Seattle, that doesn't always play out in transportation, as we well know, the way the city works. And so there are a variety of ones. One proposed going directly from Lake Union, a couple from going either going from Lake Union directly to Elliott Bay, sort of one through where the Space Needle is, Science Center area. One was going to go down basically Westlake and turn. There was also a proposal to go through Inner Bay. But the biggest proposal, and the one that was actually started, was to build a ship canal connecting Elliott Bay directly to Lake Washington through Beacon Hill, that they were going to sluice out or use these big water guns and cut basically a gap through Beacon Hill to unite Lake Washington and Elliott Bay. And obviously we don't have that, except if you ever drive Columbian Way from, say, the Spokane Street Viaduct up to Beacon Hill, you are going through the, where the canal was going to be and where they actually started excavating a little bit of it until wiser heads prevailed and it realized it was an absolutely ridiculous... Can you see that excavation? Yeah, you can just see it. To the, there's just a, that cleft in the hillside there. Huh. Um, it's clear that that's where it went. And if you walk over there and sort of poke around in that area, you'll see, you can sort of sense that artificiality of the landscape. And then how were these canals created? How were they dredged, cut? Interestingly, the first canals connecting Lake Washington to Lake Union, the first one was where 520 is right now. And part of it was excavated by a European workforce, and then, but it was completed by a group of Chinese laborers who had been hired by the company that one of the people was Denny was involved. They were hired specifically to cut the canal. At the same time, they were also hired to excavate out, dredge out a canal between Salmon Bay and Lake Union, because historically there had been an outlet of Lake Union, there was a little stream. So those were both car basically carved out of the landscape using machinery. Well, mostly those probably initially were picks and shovels, but not much else. So there was a story in one of the books about a submerged forest that was discovered? Yeah. In Lake Washington? Two of them. Okay. Tell us about those submerged forests and why were they there? They are there because about 1,100 years ago, there was a, uh, an earthquake in the Seattle area. So there is a fault system that runs from Bainbridge Island 
uh, through West Seattle, through where the stadiums are, out I-90, more or less following that route. And during the last movement of that earthquake, the land on the south was thrust up about nine feet or so, and that created this big fault in the area. And during that movement of the fault, it shook the land enough that there was a a grove of trees near Kirkland and a couple of groves of trees on the east side of Lake Washington, just around Mercer Island, that basically slid into Lake Washington, remaining upright and just slid into the lake. And when the lake was dropped nine feet, those trees, which had been low enough below the surface. That were they both, alive? They were dead. They're, everything's dead, but they're in position, upright. When the lake gets lowered, the trees are now nine feet closer to the surface. A boat hits them, sinks. Fortunately, it's close to shore. No one has died. So they went in, they blew up the tops on all of those trees. So now they're down. But then I think it was in the 70s or 80s, someone started to harvest those trees, went in, we cut them, had a diver, cut them, and then floated them out. Um, well, it was completely illegal. The state owns those trees, and he got, I think he got thrown in the pokey. Okay, wow. And they're still there. So what runs under there, under the lake, in terms of infrastructure? I don't know for sure. I know there's a lot of boats down there. Uh-huh. Uh, there are airplanes down there. There are train cars down there. Not that there was ever a train going across the lake, but there were train cars on a barge transporting coal that sunk, and they're still there. So there's a lot of stuff at the bottom of the lake. Stories and Stones, so that was an earlier book about how buildings can tell us about geology. and Yeah, what is, what's the connection between architecture and place? Or what's really the, how does geology influence buildings? And so in that book, I looked at uh, 10 different rock types from around the country and told stories. And then I've also taken that information and applied it to Seattle and tried to tell the stories of Seattle buildings through their stone. There's a quote that uh, building stone did not change the world. Building stone is the world and it will outlast us all. I thought that was great, the the permanence of these buildings. So how did stone become a material um, compared to wood here in Seattle? Seattle had a very simple reason. June 6, 1889, Seattle burns to the ground and they passed a resolution saying you have to rebuild the city with clay brick and with stone. And from that point on, that's what we did. And And how did we burn to the ground? A guy named John Back uh, caused a fire in a woodworking shop. And I mean, it's a typical city story in the sense that so many cities have burned down because of wood. London, New York, Boston, you know, even the summer of 1889, Spokane, Ellensburg, and Seattle all burned to the ground because they're all made of wood. And then you start building with brick and stone. And Seattle, like all cities, tries to use local material. There's a lot of clay for brick, so we have a lot of local brick. But there wasn't much stone, so they sought out stone where they could get it. And so you start to have that come into the city from Wilkeson near Rainier to Nino down by Olympia and then Bellingham up Chuckanut. That rock comes in, and then as the city gets richer, fashion changes, rock comes from all over the world. And so you can find rock from every continent except Antarctica in, in Seattle. So it's a form of conspicuous consumption, the type of stone that gets yeah, used sort of yeah, reflects the affluence. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because you're shipping 
you know, what's heavier than stone? There's not a lot of things. You're shipping that all over the, the globe. And that's what people want. And that's what people bought. So, yeah. So can you share like a really spectacular um, story in stone, a building downtown that you think really illustrates geology? And Arguably my favorite building, one of my favorite buildings is the, the Seattle Tower, the Northern Life building at 2nd and Marion. And the, the lower floor of it is this beautiful sort of black and pink swirly rock. It's called the Morton Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. And that Morton Nice is 3.5 billion years old. The Earth is 4.6 billion. So it's about as old a rock as there is on Earth. There's a little bit more. And that building is an Art Deco building. And the rock, which because of the swirls, has a very dynamic look to it. And Art Deco, I think, as an architectural style, often has a very static, very geometric look. And so I think they purposely chose that rock with the dynamic to balance the geometric. And so you have this sort of neat architecture story, and then you have this amazing story of geology that you have roughly the age of the earth. But to think that, I mean, whenever I lead building stone tours in Seattle, which I've done for many years, I always encourage people to to touch that rock because you're you're reaching back into the deepest time of our planet. I and mean, 3.5 billion years ago, Earth didn't even look anything. There were, there was no, there were only single-celled organisms on Earth. I mean, to think that you can touch that time period, I just think it's pretty darn cool. So we ask our guests to bring something into the studio that's important to them, and I see something here on the table. Yep, I brought one of my notebooks. I have these uh, five by seven, roughly, notebooks, and they're spiral-bound, lined notebooks. And what I like about them is I can fit my my favorite mechanical pencil down the side. And I carry this with me everywhere I go, and I can always take notes on it. I go back, I highlight them. I have probably... I don't know, 20, 25 of these over the years. And I just fill them up when I'm out in the field. Um, and I've, you know, this one has a cheat sheet so I can remember which conifer I'm looking at it. There's usually weird little stickers. It's just, it's, it's, I take photos when I'm out, but it's that writing down and forcing me to observe and forcing me to pay attention to the landscape. Um, so yeah, I just, I, these are, they're amazing. So Seattle Walks 2017, Discovering History and Nature in Seattle. So what gave the idea for the book? And, you know, maybe we can talk about a few of the walks. Yeah. As I said, I've lived here since I was five years old. I've been walking and biking everywhere in the city and always have done it and still do it. And so probably seven or eight years ago, I thought it'd be fun to try and write a book about walks. And I had been accumulating them in my head as I did the walks over the years and yeah, came up with this list of 17 walks around, each one either focused on an area or on a theme, and really trying to point out things that I noticed, I hope others notice, and if they didn't, that by pointing them out, 
they would be more engaged in the landscape around them, make stronger connections, and I hope do their own walks, ask their own questions. So it's, it's, it's been very pleasurable to have that because people will say, oh, I, I've never seen that before. And that's just such a delight. I love the walk along the Seattle waterfront for the reasons I mentioned earlier in the in that conversation, just because it's sort of shocking how much it's changed. Is there a walk in there that you found particularly surprising? Yeah. Growing up in Seattle, I'd never really spent much time in West Seattle and decided to one day see what's over there. And there's a spot, the very eastern edge of West Seattle is called Pigeon Point. And I was just with my wife. We spent a day just exploring over there, trying to see where things were. And as I started asking people about it, they said, oh, that spot over there, they did nuclear, some sort of nuclear testing, or they spied on the Japanese. Like, what are you talking about? That just seems ridiculous. But I eventually found documentation at the special collections in the University of Washington and at the National Archives that documented that that area had actually been owned by the Navy. It had been a radio facility that had, during World War II, they built an underground bunker up there because this was the closest point to get information from Alaska, which then obviously tied to points further to the West. And so it was sort of true. They were sort of spying on Japanese during the war. And then after the war, the Navy sold that property to the University of Washington. And there was a researcher at the University of Washington, a man named Donald Thomas, who was doing work with leukemia with dogs. And he needed a place to do experimentation with radiation. And he, and he experimented on these dogs, all of whom had radiation, who had been volunteered. And he did the work there. And Thomas eventually wins the Nobel Prize in medicine, work based out of that facility. And if you go up to that area. There's a school there. And as you drive down the road to the school, there's a parking lot with a little bit of a rise in it. And underneath that rise is that bunker. It's still there. Can one get into the bunker? No, it's been sealed for years. It's, I don't know exactly. I think when they built the school or sometime before that, but it's still there. And I just think that's the coolest thing. Wow. Well, we were, t- when talking earlier, said that you, you've also, and this may be in a future book, but there's a, a bunch of tunnels downtown. Yeah, there's a variety of pedestrian tunnels downtown. I'm actually working on a newsletter. So one of the things I sort of continue to try and share these stories is I have this weekly newsletter. And sometime next year, early next year, I have it written, but I'm waiting to, to, to do it, is about some of these tunnels in downtown Seattle, the pedestrian, some that you can access some that are rumored, uh, for instance, there's a variety of rumors that there were tunnels built during Prohibition so people could transport booze under the streets. I've never been able to prove them, but it sounds good, so I'm going to go with it. I also read in one of your books that there is a ship under downtown Seattle on Post Avenue. Yeah, there's a ship. It's called the Windward. And the story behind that is that ship was in the 1870s, was used to transport wood from Seattle to San Francisco, and at some point it crashes on Whidbey Island, and the guy who owned the ship owed money to somebody named James Coleman of Coleman Dock, where the ferries are. 
Coleman goes out, gets the ship from Whidbey Island, brings it into the Tide Flats area where in front of uh, more or less where when you used to, when you walked across Mary, that Marion Street overpass, it goes to the uh, ferry. Underneath there somewhere, that ship was anchored there. And when they built the railroad going north, what we now call the Burke-Gilman Trail, which is then known as the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern, the ship was there and it was basically just sort of drilled into place. And it's somewhere along there. No one's, it's, despite the excavations that have occurred for various building projects, it hasn't been found. But that the, the story is is that it's there. And it was to pay a, like a debt? It was a debt, yeah. He had floated it over and never did anything with it. But I mean, this is like a hundred and... 50, 160 foot long boat, three masts. I mean, this isn't like a little dinghy. This is a sizable ship huh. that's there. So uh, maybe we can develop some imaging technology and locate it. I would love it. If you could do that, there's all this underground stuff that I want to go see. So let speak- me know. Okay. Well, uh, speaking of underground stuff, you also have a, a chapter on the Seattle Steam Company. So can you share that? Because it's <laughs> so, such a strange. Yeah. For Mafia, it's also very romantic, you know, the, right. you see in the film noir movies, you know, Steve yeah. coming up out of these so, tunnels. And we go back to our friend John Back, 1889, Seattle burns to the ground. And afterwards, building owners decide, prior, so prior to the fire, many buildings had their own heating system. So after the fire, they decide to have a centralized heating system in Seattle. So they build a steam plant just north of Yesler, that big brick building with the big black tower sticking up. And they basically convert water to steam, send it through pipes, something like 200 miles of pipes, or I forget the exact number, a lot of miles of pipes, underneath the city to different buildings, and they would use them for heat. And they're still used. And getting back to your film noir aspect of it, as that steam goes through the pipes, if you've ever had steam heat, you know that they knock. And that pressure has to be released, so they'll release the pressure. And that's the steam you often see coming out of grates, particularly in winter. And Manhattan has the exact same system, so that's why you see it in Manhattan, too. Nowadays, that steam goes to different buildings, so it'll go to hotels. They then condense the steam and use it for washing because it's very clean, very hot water. Uh, Hospitals up on First Hill supposedly use the water for sterilization. And apparently Beecher's cheese, I've been told, also uses it in their, something in their processing because it's, it's available. And so it's still there. We still have it. The main plant is no longer in use. There's now a new one up at uh, Western and Union Street. In uh, Seattle Walks, there's also a chapter on Gasworks Park, which is one of my favorite places. I've been going there since I was a child. But what I thought was so fascinating was the way you described Richard Hogg, the architect, and how a lot of the reshaping of the topography of the park itself kind of mirrored the historic reshaping of the city. Yeah, I think that was interesting. When he was doing that work on the on the park, he wanted topography because it, it was a flat land. It had just been this very industrial. And so he purposely created those hills to sort of mimic the topography of Seattle. Yeah, he was a very influential, also did work, if I remember correctly, on Freeway Park. Just really astounding work. Well, it's hilarious that we as a city did all this work leveling so much of it, and then Richard Hogg kind of designed these viewpoints, these very tall viewpoints. And then the other piece is that a lot of the industrial pollution was encased beneath clay and, and so forth. So I think that it was innovative the way that he 
kind of managed the pollution. Very much so, yeah. So he definitely caps it in place, and by, as you said, there's this clay layer there. So it was key what he did. Yeah, and the views are amazing. Yeah. Your Brooks and your work is broad-ranging, but what are the interconnections that you see kind of that, that tie together nine different books on topics ranging from, you know, downtown building tours to geological history to the role of the water? Yeah, I'm interested in connections. And so for me, how are we influenced by the landscape around us? And then how do we then alter the landscape around us. So that's always a driver. But I'm also interested in what are the connections between plants and animals and geology. So all of those things are always driving it. And I see the world, as you pointed out at the very beginning, Edward, through a geological lens. That's still the way I frame my stories from the very beginning. That's what sort of draws me into stories. And then I've just continuously grown out from there. I've always had an interest in architecture. Uh, I've long had an interest in history itself. I might, I mean, I sort of think of myself as a natural historian. And by that, I mean, I'm interested in the nature of place and I'm interested in the human history of place. And that's how I really would describe myself as a natural historian. I think that's my framework that's different than most people. I think people are either his many are either historians or more really strictly naturalists, but I'm always interested in those those intersections. So yeah, in Home Waters, you talk a lot about how a lot of the animal life and plant life in our waters has evolved in accord with geology and also the human influence. Yeah, exactly. I mean, salmon and orca, you know, the sort of classic animals that people think of for this area, Puget Sound's only 15 and a half, 16,000 years old. And those animals salmon and orca, which are multiple species within, are, as I call them, very much homebodies. And they have adapted and evolved to this place. And they're not alone. You look at our oysters, you look at uh, the herring, they all have these very specific adaptations. And I like to think of it sort of, they have Puget Sound in their DNA. And because of that, though, those adaptations also gives them a resiliency. And to me, the best example is the Elwha dams. When those dams were taken down, salmon returned almost immediately to them. And a biologist who studies that area said to me, they did that because they've been doing that for thousands of years. They've been dealing with changes in climate. They've been dealing with changes in the geological conditions. So that to me, is, as you point out, it's a perfect illustration of that connection between the natural world, the geological world, and the animal world. David, how has this work transformed you as an individual? A couple of things. One, I mean, I my ideal world, I would be out in wilder places all the time, but that's not the reality that I live in. I live in a very urban environment. I live in Seattle. And so I really found that I focus on those small stories and I derive a great enjoyment from it. Uh, 
I like finding the stories. I like noticing the stories. I like researching the stories. So it's made me happier to be here to have those connections to the stories that I've found and the observations I've found. And the other part of it is I really feel that we are we are all part of this community and we are all part of the negatives that have happened. We all drive, we all contribute to it, but we also can be part of the positives. And so I guess I derive some hope that as we can, people continue to develop those connections, to strengthen their relationships, that they'll realize that their actions do make a difference. I mean, I think we're often told that, oh, what you do doesn't make a difference because of the corporate world, the government. They, they have huge impacts. But I want to live, try to live, I don't do it as well as I like, but I try to live in such a way that I recognize that my actions are part of it and that what I do does make a difference and for positive or negative. So trying to live that way and it's grown out of that developing relationship with place. And tell us about your current project. You're uh, writing a book now. Yeah, so I'm working on a book about human and natural history in the Cascade Mountains in Washington State. So I've been focusing on human history in the mountains and really intrigued by how much, both in terms of time, but also geographically, the mountains were used. That pe- there's evidence for human use of the mountains here for 10,000 years. And not just passing through, but actually using, going up and being part of that landscape. And I don't think that's always commonly held that the mountains were so critical, such an important part of the story of this area. So I'm ex- I'll be looking at, the, the book will explore wolverines and huckleberries and fire and fish and all sorts of topics. But at present, I'm, I'm focusing on the human story. just happened to be the where, where I began the book. Can't wait to read about it. I, I'm having fun writing it. And then we asked our guests to share a place that matters to them above all else, a place that you, you would be sad if it disappeared in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, right now, the place that I go to a lot for a variety of reasons is uh, hiking up Mount Dickerman off the Mountain Lips Highway. It, it, I, it's some of my favorite views my wife and I go up there almost every year. In part, um, our dog's ashes are up there. Um, so there's a very strong connection to uh, the life we lived with her. But it's also just a beautiful spot. Uh, it's a challenging hike. And so it's always, you know, we can't do it first of the season. And so that, that to me is one of my grounding spots. Well, good. So I understand that our guests can learn from you further if they'd like to do that through a private tour. Yeah, I do tours, uh, building a variety of different walking tours around Seattle. Uh, I can either set them up as a, say, an individual or or for one to do it for a group, but I also do it through a variety of organizations. Um, Most often I do it through a group called the Field Trip Society. Um, I keep information about that on my website, geologywriter.com, that has all the sort of information on what I'm doing, walks, books, my newsletter. There you have it. So you can learn more from David by going to geologywriter.com. And thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Always fun to chat. Thank you, David. Mountain, 
Join us next time when our guest will be Dick Coolant, whose stories will warm your soul on these dark winter days, just as he has brought audiences across the Pacific Northwest to their feet for decades as band leader of the Dick Coolant Ensemble. Dick will recount the quiet joys of growing up poor in Seattle Central District in the 1940s. His stories will recount how kids like him dive for dimes at Seattle's Madison Park Ferry Landing. And he'll share experiences touring and composing with Dizzy Gillespie, and how later Dick's band would perform at the Edgewater Hotel, the Four Seasons, the Meany Hotel, Tacoma's Al Gaucho Restaurant, and at the Sorrento Hotel's Top of the Town Ballroom. So join us next time on Power of Place to hear the stories of Dick Coolen, including his secrets for a long and fulfilling life. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering by Daniel Gunther and photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Barbour with theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway. With additional music written by Andrew Weathers as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. This episode also featured music performed by April Vasquez. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories. <laughs>